Welcome to episode five of Britpop Movies, Movies of, of a Certain, certain age. age. Indeed. And this time we have yet another double bill for you. It is. Yep. It's a rocktastic late 50s double bill of a couple of the pioneering films in the genre that we're looking at now. I think so. We have, first of all, Rock You Sinners. Yeah, mm -hmm. from 1957, followed by The Golden Disc from 1958. Yes, indeed. So, what a treat. <clears throat> <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> yes, well, there we go. Uh, let's start then, of course, with what is considered to be the first British rock and roll movie, and that is Rock You Sinners. So I'm going to pass you over to Matt for the synopsis. Thank you. And, of course, as always, fingers in ears if you don't want to hear any spoilers. So, January 1957. Bored with his job as a radio disc jockey and eager to break into television, Johnny Lawrence is persuaded by his wacky friend and sidekick Pete to check out the exciting new musical phenomenon sweeping Britain, rock and roll. Aided by girlfriends Carol and Jackie, they set about recruiting acts for a showcase to be attended by powerful TV executive Paul Selway. However, trouble brews as Carol feels Johnny is neglecting her in favour of organising his pilot programme. But the show goes ahead successfully and an impressed Selway commissions Johnny to make eight editions of the show. Johnny and Carol make it up and they join their friends and all of the musicians for a celebratory jive at their local coffee bar. The end. Yes, indeed. Well, that's going to be one of our shorter plot synopsis. <laughs> or is it? Uh, uh, we that, know. Uh, it certainly is the full story, the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth in that yes, synopsis there. Uh, what did you reckon to this one, Matt? Well, let's have a think. Um, by any sane, sober and clear-eyed assessment, this is a bad film. <laughs> this, this is... This is um, thinly written, woodenly acted. The plot is almost non-existent. Um, the musical acts are interesting, but they are not what one today immediately thinks of when you think of rock and roll. Uh, of this era, certainly. And it's a very, very, very cheaply made movie, and we'll talk about the people who made it uh, in a bit. It's, it's a fancy it's, film. It's a, it's a fancy <laughs> film, and we'll talk about how fancy this film is. Yes. Um, he uh, It treats rock and roll simply as a dance craze. There's no danger or subversion or insurrection in anything about this film. We are recording this um, literally a few days after Little Richard passed away. And yeah. and you can imagine, all right, maybe Bill Haley got into the charts first, but once you've had Elvis Presley and Little Richard, white straight America certainly hadn't seen anything like them before, or certainly not for generations. Um, and the wider Western world, it was like a bomb going off, especially with Elvis and especially with Little Richard. Although the powers that be tried to keep Little Richard on the back burner in favour of people like Pat Boone covering his material. It tore a hole 
in the generations and it burst a hole in the entertainment world and the wider world of music and film and culture, rock and roll was like a bomb going off for a generation. And you barely get a hint of that in this movie. I don't think you do get... I, yeah, I don't think you do get any hint of it at all, actually. No, th- this is, this is a, very much the world of deference... And certainly in terms of Johnny courting the TV executive, where he refers to him Mm. as Sir the whole time, and he's a very, very patrician character, isn't he, the TV executive? Uh, And those looks he gives over his shoulder, that sort of nodding, approving, paternal nods he gives back to the younger man. It's it's deference. It's the world of the the ruling class and and the aspirational middle class, perhaps. uh, Maybe that's putting it too nicely. But there are a few things within this film and a few connections that we'll come to over the course of this episode that lead to uh, the ending of that world, or ostensibly the ending of that world in the early 60s. And there's a few direct links between this very film and the satire boom and the Profumo affair in particular, all ties together with elements of this film. But the best thing about it, the best thing about it is... There's moments, and particularly the scene at the beginning in the dance hall, which I think was the Empire Ballroom in Tottenham Court Road, that were filmed guerrilla style on mm. 16mm cameras. And the difference between those and all the, the actual scripted scenes later on... Shock and they cheese, snuck, yeah. yeah, and it's got and it's got a real raw documentary feel. I would call it a rude energy to those scenes. The young people dancing in the ball, in the ballroom... And the bands performing on stage at the ballroom, they're genuinely sweating, they're genuinely performing. There is a rude energy to this that I think just for those few moments in this film make it worth it and show us a glimpse of the very, very early days of this scene and of what British dance halls and the music scene generally would have been like back in 1957. Yeah, it actually starts... Rather promisingly, doesn't it? Yeah. The first few frames of the film. I would agree. Yes, indeed. I, I, I would agree with everything that you've just said. When we started doing this series, this was a first target point for one of the reasons for making this series. Yes. And by that, I mean that one of the elements we were going to look at and are looking at throughout this series is... Were the films made as a tribute to the music to enhance artists, to show artists in good light, or were they an exercise in exploitation? And this one has the latter written all over it. An exercise <laughs> in exploitation. Mm. From, right, everything about it screams that. Yes. And I think just by accident by a couple of happy accidents there are elements of the film which are interesting certainly Mm. again from a historical perspective we've been here before on some previous titles that we've looked at uh, where the historic interest is actually greater than the uh, quality of the film itself yes but in this case it's more incidental than by design and I do agree with you about those those dancehall shots, particularly the opening sequence, which is actually quite nicely done with the yes. the couples dancing, you know, in and out of the light, 
it's quite a nice little sequence. But by and large, this film plums the depths. I mean, <laughs> it, it it really does plumb the depths of of bad quality in yeah. almost everything. To to say that Jackie Collins is the best actor in the piece, bearing yes. in mind that she gave up acting for her writing. Uh, to say she's the best actor in this is is no overstatement and it gives you a level of the sort of quality that we're at it's it's a really poor film let's just mention for the beginning the company that made it yeah let's make the do film that. first it, because it's, it's because the it feeds in the room. it because it's the elephant in the room although it's not explicit in the credits the executive producer of this movie was one ej fancy mm. now Fancy may have been his name. Fancy definitely was not his game when it came to the movies that he made. It was definitely... The word Poverty Row has been used more than once uh, (laughs) when describing the EJ Fancy oeuvre. The British um, writer and broadcaster, Matthew Sweet, described EJ Fancy as the Cecil B. DeMille of cheap British rubbish. (laughs) And these were very, very much uh, B-movie... Second, if you're lucky, second feature movies yeah. um, of, of a bit of films. This would be the one sort of thrown in. I don't know if there was a quota of British films that we had to have uh, by this point, but even so, it was still of that mentality. And I think his were, his were the movies you wondered why they bothered making them at all. Yeah, renowned films have an EJ Fancy collection, which includes this movie and a few uh, other ones of his. And I'm almost tempted to get it, but I know that about 98% of it's going to be rubbish. He'd been going since the 40s at EJ Fancy um, and started um, New Realm Pictures, but he had a whole Mm. raft of different companies. Fancy was quite a hands-on filmmaker, not only when he came to sort of all all his family being involved, but he, he actually is alleged to have done time in the 1940s for stabbing his accountant in the groin. Yeah. Yeah, I, and, I, I read that, yeah. And, and Michael, Michael Winner himself told a story about how, uh, about his sort of wheelings and dealings and everything, working with EJ e. Fancy, and about how they were in the, trying to, I forget which one of his films it was, but one of the crew, they had, they had, they needed a couple of hours to get all the shots in the can or they couldn't, you know, complete what they needed for the film, for whatever film they were working on. And one of the crew said that, uh, no, I've got to be off by six. You know, that's it. There's no question, no question. And Winner pleaded with him and everything like that. Nothing. The guy was intractable. He wouldn't do it. So he um, he mentioned it to EJ Fancy, who was on set. He goes, don't worry, boy, leave it with me. And he takes the guy off around the corner for a few minutes, comes back and goes, um, don't worry, Michael, he'll stay for as long as you like. Yeah, don't worry, no, not a problem anymore. He'll stay as long as you like. And Winner went, um, so... What do you do? Give him money? And Fancy went, no, I said, you see this fist? If you don't stay in your bleeding job, it's going right in your face. <laughs> it, was, it was a tactile, it was a tactile yeah. approach to filmmaking. I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. It. Now, it's, I mean, it, it, he's quite obviously a, a forceful character. Yeah. Uh, everything about the way he, he appears to have run his business is all about him and his yeah. empire. It turns out I have seen some of his films because... He um he was very he was clearly very quick to jump on a if he sensed something was bubbling under jump yeah. on it and make a yeah. and make a film about it yeah um, I know where you're going he uh, because he made 
three films in various combinations that in the early 50s, from 51, uh, 51 through to about 53, he made three movies featuring uh, an up-and-coming radio comedy team called The Goons. Goons, yeah. Down and, Among the uh, Z-Men. Down Among the Z-Men is the, is the most prominent of them, with all mm. four. But they show up the year... That was 52. The, the year before, in 51, there's a sort of semi-documentary-ish sort of film with Eamon Andrews called London Entertains about a bunch of um, women who've just finished finishing school doing a sort of... It's not quite an escort service, but they're sort of showing men around... <laughs> uh, <laughs> start of a business show, take men around London, but the <laughs> ultimate help, you can tell, is to get themselves a husband. And, uh, and Eamon Andrews comes on board sort of ostensibly to make a documentary about it and chaperone them. But it's really... The, the dialogue states that he's after the women as well, you know, and... Yeah. Um, and the goons... At one point, they go to Broadcasting House and watch... The Goons being recorded, so there's a valuable bit of footage of, of the Goon show with the original four piece lineup. Mm. You know, uh, Spike Milligan, Peter yeah. Sellers, Michael Benteen, and 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 uh, mm. Harry Seacombe, all there. Um, and they show up in, in the, and also there's a pointless comedy character in that as well, who doesn't have much to do with the plot. Um, uh, who's crowbarred in? Yeah, then down among the Z Ben, there's a film called Forces Sweetheart in '53 with Benteen and Seacombe both in it as well the year after so he'd obviously he'd, he'd obviously sort of moved into that but this particular film is more the sort of child of edwin fancy's then wife bc fancy isn't it that's right she wrote the script yeah yeah it's she script. the script well if you, if you say if you say write or script i mean they're both yeah. pretty tenuous <laughs> connections the script is actually one of those scripts that's uh, that's so annoying in that you just think look you've got no plot just don't bother with the plot at all yeah so just show the band so just just don't bother with it what what is the love what is the purpose of a love twist in a plot where you build no character development. Who cares if Johnny's girlfriend's going to go away from him? I don't care about Johnny, no, and I care yeah. even less about his girlfriend who said three words in the movie. You know, exactly. I don't care. So You're not the least bit you... invested in their story. You're not invested in the character's story. And it's a script that moves forward in questions. Always <laughs> in questions and answers. So how mm. are you going to do that, Johnny? Well, I've thought of that, and I'm going to... You know, it's it's that kind mm. of a script where everything is a wooden one wooden question into another wooden answer. Or, yeah. in, in many cases, into a, hmm, that's what I was thinking. You know, another question. <laughs> you know, and, and, it, it, and it's just horrendous. One of the probably the best bits in scripting is when right at the start of the movie he's he's saying oh i've spun 2000 discs or whatever mm. um uh and the it's the sidekick who will come to says <laughs> but you but rock and roll's come now that must soup things up a bit and he says oh yes mm. i suppose it makes a bit of a difference but i can't see what it's all about really and that yeah. rings true for a start but mm. the next comment his friend says ah but that's because you haven't been to the dance halls and I think that's probably the only real honest bit of the script because yeah. it's kind of saying you've got to get down and dirty with the guys to really appreciate what this music's all about and what the vibe it's giving off. So if I was to defend, that's probably the best yeah. moment of scripting there is uh, in the movie. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there's not too much to say about uh, BC Fancy. Uh, she didn't no. do an awful lot. Uh, and thank goodness for that. Yes, uh, I think, because, I think stretched her talents to the limits doing this. I think, but it's, yeah, her work on this is, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah. Incidentally, the um, 
he I don't know quite what his marital relations uh were because she was his wife. BC Fancy was his wife. First um, wife, yeah. First wife. And then he um he had a common law wife later on mm. in Who the in the shape of yeah, of yeah. Called uh, Olive Negus Fancy. Who he yes, moved Olive Negus Fancy. Negus Fancy. Yes. Uh, how um, lovely. And she became a film producer as well. She came on board with the with the company yeah. as well. And one of the films she produced was The Primitives. Oh my that god! We mentioned, so, that we mentioned. High last quality time. stuff. High quality. Yeah. So bad it's not even allowed in this series. <laughs> Even we got limits, folks. Even we yeah. got limits. <laughs> the uh, cinematographer is one Hal Morey, of whom I don't think I've seen any of his movies, and judging by his work here, unless he was having a very, very, very off day, um, is is barely competent. I've not seen any of his films. And the production values are pretty poor as well. There are a few great examples that did make me laugh. In 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 one of the opening scenes... The first time we see our hero in his garret, yeah, you can quite clearly see as the as the man comes to deliver the message, the little letter to him, that the bookshelf on the wall is painted. There yes. are no books on his wall. It's a flat. It's absolutely <laughs> and not even that carefully painted. Just like slapped in there. And as the camera pans past and he walks through to his bedroom, yeah. you see the. Papa thin join in That's the right. shot. You see it because it goes yeah. past the, the yeah. through the rooms, doesn't it? And yeah. You see the bit of the wall, doesn't it? Yeah, you and see this, and the bit of the wall is about half an inch thick. Mind you, I've lived in houses like that. But they lend the sets to Crossroads uh, several years later, no doubt. <laughs> uh, it, it well, there, there's a, there's another bit in that in that same scene where they're leaving his his room, and there's a guitar on the coffee table just left there as a bit of prop. And the other character, Pete, bumps into it and it spins round on the <laughs> on the table. And I guarantee that is that was just a an accident. And it was just right. No, that's good. That's good enough. We'll keep. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll exactly. go on to the next yeah. bit. You know. But there were one or two shots that are okay. Uh, the dance sequences are quite nicely done. They they flip from being as you. The fly on the wall documentary style, which which is the bet they are the best moments. Yes, but they do lots of hero shots of of some of the bands, lots of in feet shots of the dancing, as well as broader yes. shots of the dancers. They do get quite a nice feel of that. And what's interesting is it's quite clearly the last hurrah of the British dance halls. In that fashion, yes. This, and particularly with the style of music, it is is a, the last link between the swing era and the big band era and the rock and roll era. It's where the two start to break yeah. apart. You can clearly see it. You can clearly see it. Yeah, and that's explicit in several of the musicians that we'll come to. We'll come to that. So, how more is the cinematographer director? Is Dennis Cavanagh, who would have been fifty years old uh, when this film was made. Mm. And prime, prime for making this sort of movie. Absolutely. Just, just like Richard Lester. Exactly. <laughs> and even he didn't have any. Um, it was, yeah. uh, but he seems to have done a lot of work for for EJ Fancy. Did Dennis Cavanagh? Yes. Um, and but I've not seen anything else that he's um, that he's directed. Maybe well, if I've not did... seen Swing Tees. 
Well, I've not seen that. It was only a short, but it had lots of really good people in it. Actually, had the Mills Brothers and Nat Gunella. Okay. Have you seen the it? great trumpet player in it? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like an early music video yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. It's just music. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, things, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's a short well, from nineteen forty. Yeah. Okay. Well, he seems to have. Yeah, like I say, it seems to be mostly for EJ Fancy and mostly B features. And yeah, yeah. Fair enough. No notes, really. It's a pretty poor job he does here. Um, or certainly, certainly, maybe just didn't have a lot to work with. Who knows? Can you imagine if you are put in charge of a film and you read the script and this is the script? Yeah. You're not going to f- go, go go back. Yeah. I have a go, vision. Oh, I'm inspired. Got, I've got it's this not... film. <laughs> I'm doing this film. It's going to be fantastic. Because even the endings are let down. Instead of doing kind of what they did at the end of 6-5 special, and that was do the big show at the end, they didn't bother with any of that. And that's one of the areas that this film really falls down in again. They have no big set piece at the end of it. You know, even a film as rudimentary as 6-5 special and other films that we see later that we'll, we'll cover, like it's Trad Dad... Yeah. You know, they realise that after even a nonsensical, silly film with no plot, which 6-5 Special had no plot and no character development no. and all, all of the same things we're talking about, it's a better film than this for a number of reasons. Yes. And one of them is it has a set-piece ending. It at least sees fit to have a set-piece ending. Yeah, and this just doesn't bother. It does feel it does feel like you got somewhere. They're just yeah. in, a, in this movie. They're just in another room with some more bands playing, and fewer people than you get. The, the most people you see dancing to the rock and roll music yeah. is right at the beginning, and you get fewer and fewer people each time. It's sort of yeah. All the energy you get is right at the beginning. It's, it's roaring towards an anticlimax, yeah, and it's... all the people in the audience are the other bands who are sitting down. Pretty mm. much, yeah. Everyone said it. The last scene, almost everyone said, you get fewer and fewer people and fewer and fewer people dancing. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. Uh, I mean, it just yeah. says a lot about the making of this movie, doesn't it? So that's the cal- calibre of the, uh, the, the makers of this film. Uh, mm. So pretty much rock bottom. And you can see from the type of people we're talking about, mm. they would not be looking to make a high-quality music film. They would not be looking to make their mark. They'd be looking to go, rock and roll's hot at the moment. Let's make a quick buck. Yeah. Who do we know? Let's get him Haley, he plays very 
and plays just like he should But here the fans, they start to go Rockin' and rollin' the calypso Singin' aye, aye, aye You gotta rock, rock, rock and roll Aye, aye Rock and roll. Bob Mitchum, eat your heart out. So, yes. should we start? Or let's get some of these actors out of the way. Let's get yes. Philip Gilbert, the yeah Johnny Lawrence. He plays. Johnny He's Lawrence. the hero of this of this movie. Loosely speaking, there's nothing particularly <laughs> heroic about him. No, and but he's, he's a protagonist. A, he's the main protagonist. Yeah, but I mean, he's a. Inter- Although he's Canadian mm. by birth, he's as yes. he's as you couldn't find someone who looked more sort of repressed English. No, uh, exactly. He, he never loosens his tie at any point in the in <laughs> in the movie, and he looks like he's in his thirties or something. He wasn't. He was what about twenty six? I think the actor was twenty six at the time. Mm. Mm. So you know, a, a he young was. guy, he was. and it's a pretty bad performance as well. I oh, mean, it's, it's a like, shockingly wooden performance. He's got this sort of boss-eyed look into the middle distance. He looks like yeah. a sort of mannequin or an android or something. Yeah. Or, or somebody just in the concussion ward of a hospital. It's sort of particularly a scene where, where he's thought to be romancing the singer, you know, in the coffee bar oh, where ja- Jackie God. Collins and her friend look through the, the yeah, window. Yeah, yeah. And he's there sort of holding hands but and they're sort of looking at each other but not quite. They're not no, making they're eye not. contact. That nobody quite them. makes... I don't know if they're reading off cue cards or something or or what? But there's hardly any dialogue, think, so why, why I, I, would they? I think, I think some of them almost certainly are. The singer he's talking to at that point, who Jones obviously Small. is not uh, yeah, is not an actress, Joan Small. No. Uh, so she's probably got those lines there. She's definitely not looking at him. And yeah. just maybe in sympathy, he's also not looking at her. <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite bizarre, but... There, it's not the only wooden moment in the film. Uh, he has a he has a stretch of wooden moments with various different rock and roll stars. Yeah. I say stars. It's like a stick of wooden rock, really. Stick of wooden rock and roll. Yeah, with me little stick of wooden rock and roll. <laughs> uh, uh, it, yeah, it's a dire central performance, which pretty much <laughs> matches. Uh, matches the caliber of the film it, but he did he did have a quite an extensive career i mean it, you'd imagine from this performance that it would be like sit here today and go tomorrow yeah, Death he'd, been, he'd been in some quite good stuff prior to this he'd been reach in, for the sky been in and simon and laura which is in 55 before that which was um a very early film about reality television almost mm. uh it's shown on talking pictures oh, i've not seen it interesting uh movie uh who was the director uh, Muriel Box, so one okay. of the few women directors in Britain at the time did it. Oh, I've not seen that. And shortly after this, he makes Dentist in the Chair and Dentist on the Job with Bob Monkhouse. Yeah, quite entertaining movies. Yep. He's in F- Fanatic, the Hammer movie with Tallulah Bankhead. He's in that. Yeah, he's in the good uh, Herbert Lom series, The Human Jungle. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's a good mm. series. Yeah, mm. lots of tell, lots and lots of telly and, and stage. He's in Superman Three. He shows up <laughs> in that with Dick Lester. Um, but uh, but his most enduring role, um, again on television, was the voice of Tim the Computer in the Tomorrow People. 
yeah. on ITV, which is ITV's attempt at uh, having something that was as popular as Doctor Who. Doctor Who, um, yeah. And yeah. it was their attempt to create a rival programme against that. It didn't quite work, but it's very fondly remembered. It went for quite a few years. And in mm. fact, when, when I think he'd largely retired from acting by this point, but early part of this century, um, big finished productions, the audio company that do a lot of mm. Doctor Who stuff, uh, as well as many other things, Prisoner and all, um, did a Tomorrow People, or several series of Tomorrow People audio stories with some of the original cast picking up from in the same continuity as, as the original series. And he returned for Big Finish and did the voice of the computer once again for wow. Big Finish. So, um, so yeah, it's... Um, no, look, he had a very extensive uh, career, which began in 1955 and went on to 1980s, to the 1980s. You don't do that if you don't have some talent. So mm. although we're, we've frankly rubbished him in this, he obviously had ability. Yes. He doesn't show it in this movie. And perhaps that's the vehicle. Perhaps he totally didn't believe in it either. Uh, I don't know where he found the suit, whether he, it was his dad's suit that was lying around. I just don't know what happened. But he, he looks dreadful, dreadfully dressed throughout <laughs> the whole thing. His best moment is probably at the beginning when he mm. throws away the bit of pa- paper and smashes his pillow on the alarm clock. That's yeah, probably yeah. The, that is probably the most rebellious and ultra thing that he does or anybody does in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's short-lived and it's, you know, it's it's over. So that's <laughs> Philip Gilbert. Yeah. So then there's Johnny's girlfriend, Carol, played by Adrian Scott, a.k.a. Adrian Fancy, daughter of EJ Fancy. As well as being in Rock You Sinners, Adrian Scott was in Force's Sweetheart that you mentioned. Was in, that's right. She was in London Entertains, I think. I think she was. Uh, it's the sort of thing she yeah, would have been in. More often than not, she was in it. In the early 60s, gave up the acting lark, and I don't blame her, uh, to, to, to go more into the realm of producing uh, well, as, well, she's, as her father had before her. She's got a dual role in this, actually, because mm, she's, yes, she's, uh, she's right. also on the credits as, um, as AMB Fancy. She's down as Adrienne Scott playing the character Carol Carter. Mm. Um, but she's down as AMB Fancy. She's also the production manager of the mm. movie. Mm. Um, and later on, she, um, she took over the reins of New Realm Pictures. That's right. Yeah. Which by this point was a um, cinema distribution company. And by the 70s, um, they distributed a... Because um, Fancy's sort of output by the turn of the 60s had morphed into sort of... Um, what do we call uh, what's it? educational naturist movies? It, it, yeah, they were sexy, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, and uh, some like it cool was one. Yeah, um, and then and then by the end of the sixties, it was like full on softcore. It's not even yeah, hiding yeah, it yeah. anymore. They were just softcore porn. But in amongst all that, they retained. They got the rights to distribute in Britain in seventy four. Um, yeah. Uh, a movie called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, yeah, Emmanuel, yeah, the famous Emmanuel. So that was thanks to the the fancy uh, company that that yeah. hit the cinemas. And then um, by this century, because she she only died in two thousand twelve, and um, they did uh, they distributed Mrs Henderson Presents, The Queen, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Quite, yeah, yeah. quite, actually, quite, quite respectable, quite good movies, quite good movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, by this century, yeah. and she incidentally was. Uh, the first woman to head a film distribution company in the UK. 
which that's is a little. Pretty, I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, no, that's good. And that's you something. Know, good I think that's, that's yeah, something. good. No, good on her. Good on her. And uh, we talked about Adrian Scott. Um, yeah. Should we talk about the sidekick? In yeah, let's case. talk about Colin Croft, and we're not Colin talking about Croft. the f- we're not talking about the famous West Indian fast bowler, by the way, Colin <laughs> Croft, who, who was one of the fearsome Andy Roberts, Colin Croft, Joel Garner, and uh, and of course the Whispering Death, Michael Holding, as in the words of in the words of Jeffrey Boycott, they'd knock your block off. But uh, no stickeroo barb there. Um, so yeah, no, he was not that Colin Croft. Very far from it. Uh, I don't Very think this. But I don't think this guy could have uh, bowled my eight-year-old daughter out at cricket, let alone anything else. <laughs> they could use uh, him as a stump. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but so, yeah, he's an Aussie. He's an Aussie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Born in nineteen twenty-two, which would have made him about thirty-five. Yeah, about, about the yeah. age of most people um, in this movie. Yeah. He had started um, in Australia as a juvenile um, performer. Um, well, we all started as juvenile. We all started juvenile. You were born at an early age. Uh, they, but, um, but he was a juvenile female impersonator oh, uh, great. on the, on the well, Aussie stage. Ma- Oh, that makes sense, actually. Look at the way he performs his number in this, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Because he, he did that. He did a lot of review work in Australia before coming to Britain. He was a dancer primarily, wasn't he? And you can see it. He's actually a good dancer. Yeah, yeah his dan- he's not his, bad, da- yeah. his dancing in this is actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, but it has to be one of the weirdest performances Which I've ever seen really? on celluloid. Quite it's, shocking it's... in a way. Yeah. I mean, there was bits where I didn't know. There's a bit 23 minutes in, and I timed it, because I met the very, very first time I watched this, it was on Talking Pictures TV initially is where I first saw it. And there was a bit where it's where the sort of the romantic upset part of it's coming in, where uh, Johnny's girlfriend is is yeah, thinking he's neglecting her, and it goes a bit pear-shaped between... Um, I think Jackie Collins' character walks off with her. And there's a bit there where... Um, Pete, or Colin Cross character Pete, is staring her out in a really weird way. He's sort of like, sort of like giving her the giving her the evil eye, but in a very sort of yeah. And I, I remember thinking, watching it in a serial killer it's 20, way, yeah. 20, in a serial killer way, and it's twenty three minutes into the film, and I remember thinking, why is this bloke acting so weird? And then it suddenly do- he does this thing where he go, looks at the camera, and goes women, <laughs> and I thought. Oh, it's supposed to be funny. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, oh, I get it. He's supposed to be the funny one. And it's supposed to be a comical performance. But trouble is, he plays it so broadly. I get the impression that his way of performing is something that would have worked really great on a stage. Stage. It's playing to the gallery kind kind of work. And and his, it is it is in his panto acting. It's, it's very big, yeah. broad a, yeah. uh, acting and performing. But yeah. the fact, but the fact that it's framed so weird, the, the, it works against it that the film is made so quickly and cheaply. The shots are set up almost all in in mid shot or long shot against it mm. all. I mean that bit where he's staring around. If they framed it a bit better, might have been quite effective or comical. But it's not. It's just one block mid shot, yeah. and he's just stood there like peering at her. If those shots were framed a bit better and he had a stronger hand on him, but he's obviously been told, you're the funny one, but you can be as over the top as you like. And that's always the kiss of death to 95% of actors. Telling them to go over the top is the kiss of death because they do. Well, the other problem with 
if if anybody out there know anything about comedy, what you know is the energy of the piece helps with comedy. So if you're in a comedy, mm. if you are trying to make funny stuff happen in a dead film as this is mm. that's a pretty tough gig unless you are inherently funny sort of one of mm. those people who walks on at like rowan atkinson or tommy yeah, cooper, cooper or yeah. eric morecambe or someone like that who when they literally when they walk on the titters start because of yep. their very being is auto yep. the way they look the way they move is automatically funny but if you're trying to create comedy and nothing else around you is in any way comical, that's a pretty tough gig. Mm. And as you say, his his motions are too broad. There's no energy around him. There's no one to bounce mm. off. There's no one to feed no. him lines who he can bounce off. There's no there's no energy for him to, to build that comedy yes. from. And it's yes, also fish out of water stuff. We were off air talking today about a film I was watching, The Terranauts. Yes. We, we, we yes. were chatting about earlier. And we, I was Amateur talking about this very, uh, very self-same thing. So you're in a situation where everybody is playing it straight. Every single character is playing it straight. Uh, and not that it's a heavyweight film by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but any, everybody is playing it straight. And then Charles Hawtrey comes in. And uh, Charles Hawtrey who's brilliant in the carry-on films and several yep. other films aside, yep. comes on and it's mid-carry-on period. This is 1967, so he's right in the flower of that. He comes yes. on and does the same turn that he does in a carry-on movie. So mm. he comes on and immediately he's firing weird... Sli his head never stays still. He's firing these sort of, oh, did she or didn't she, looks out of his eyes. Yeah. He's, he, he won't say... He's not really responding to the stuff that's happening around him. He's responding to his own inner dialogue or to the expected way that Charles Hawtrey is supposed to move. And immediately he breaks the fourth wall and, and mm. completely bombs the rest of the vibe of the movie. Now that's not because Charles Hawtrey isn't a good performer. He's sensational in the carry on movies yeah. and a few other, but terrible within that setting. And this guy is thrown in like a little incendiary device into a, a, a vacuum. Yeah. You know? Well, that's true. And, and you're right. Actually saying all that about Charles Hawtrey, because this guy, Colin Croft never, misses the opportunity to sort of give it the side eye or pull a no. face or Absolutely. every single time the camera's on him he's do yeah and you can imagine he's expecting the viewers in, in the cinema to to be cracking up at his antics but it just doesn't work and it just looks weird it really does whenever i've been on a film set doing background work or something mm. like that the one thing that you absolutely know you you mustn't do is mug you yes know, it's it's the big expressions. Oh, oh, did they? Ah! <laughs> uh, because it, it 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 just it's terrible stuff. What you know it, it, when you're doing film work and everything, it's got it's all about the small, you know, yeah. minor details. And the camera blows everything up. And you want to be understated and really in the moment to what is happening, focused on what your character is doing and is responding to. Not a big pantomime. Oh! That was a big gesture, folks. I, that I was, was doing yes, yes. The, 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 the hands fully up. apart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
and, and this is the opposite. And I, and I suspect being a dancer, there's no question he would have done a lot of stage work, a lot of stage mm. work. Mm-hmm. So that comes across in this. So whilst I think his performance is by and large absolutely ludicrous, <laughs> I will give him the benefit that he was the wrong man in the wrong movie. This wasn't the right movie for anyone, no. but he was the wrong man in the wrong movie. So in another setting, he might have worked very well. Yeah. The only thing I'll say in his favour is that in those scenes in the dance halls um, where he's dancing in amongst the crowds mm. with Jackie Collins. Dances well. He's lost in it and he's not mugging. Yeah. He's, and yeah. he's dancing really well and he's actually lost in the, in the force of the music. And those bits, he actually comes across quite well, those brief mm. moments. But those are the best moments in the movie. It, it reminds me of a bit of a film uh, in, a, in a film that we will be covering at some point. Because there's the weird bit. Ordinarily, through this film, it's structured so that it's a drama film and the music is the actual band's performing. Mm. But there's a weird bit that's a, like a couple of moments in Expresso Bongo, mm. where suddenly the ca- yeah. it's not sold as a musical with a capital M. It's a film in no. music, you know. But then yeah. one of the characters... W- well, there's a couple of moments of Espresso Bongo that are hangovers from yeah, the original yeah. stage play where people suddenly burst into song and it, cu- and it feels really weird in the context of the movie. It does. And there's the bit where, where Colin Cross sings his song. Yeah. Um, in the record store, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the record store, which it just is weird. I mean, it's, it, it plays to all the worst aspects of Colin Croft's performance Absolutely. and the tone of the film full stop but it, and also it comes out of blue because it's never happens before or since in the film where one yeah. of the actual characters bursts into yeah. song it's always never. been the context of the thing so and uh yeah that's a really weird and you moment. and you wish that one had stayed on the cutting room floor you yeah. could just see in the wooden smiles of jackie collins and 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 assembled company so, and smile everyone yeah okay how long yeah. for you know he's so funny uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's bad. I, it, we um, will obviously go to an Expresso Bongo later in the series, but I totally agree with you on that one. I, I Just before we do, I think it's a shame they didn't leave more of the musical numbers of Espresso Bongo in there just for mm. that continuity purpose. But anyway, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. come to that film at we'll a later come date. come to that. But yeah, Colin Croft went to he went back to Australia a few years, a couple of years after this film was With made. With his tail Colin, between Colin, his legs, I can say in disgrace. <laughs> but he uh, he never worked again. But he did. He went. He did a lot again. He did went back. Did a lot of telly and stage work in Australia. Uh, he's in Skippy. Um, oh, the Bush was, Kangaroo. Yes. Yep. Last thing he did, the year he died in eighty nine, he was in what looked. There's a little clip of it on YouTube. What looks to be an appalling comedy series in Australia called Family Business and there's a trailer for it you can find it on YouTube um, and it's got you just see a smidgen of Colin Croft as an older man giving exactly the same broad hammy performance as he does in this so obviously Fabulous. the years the years did not mellow him from what I can tell from these from these clips <laughs> marvellous absolutely yes. marvellous right, let's move on from Colin Croft yes uh, we move on to the uh, lovely Jackie Collins the gorgeous Jackie Collins yeah yeah. younger sister of Joan I'd completely forgotten that she had tried her hand as an actress herself well, she was in the acting she was in the acting business for a while I mean it, it's it's easy to say sort of uh, oh she did a bit of acting and then obviously realised it wasn't for her and gave up but she was in the acting from the early 50s 
right mm. through to the mid 60s yeah. without really any break and again mm. doing okay uh, and she was fine in, in this she's one of the more natural people doing, yes. probably giving the best performance she's got hardly any lines in it or anything but she doesn't ham it up and she doesn't yeah. mug at all yeah her main lines are to say oh pete you're crazy to remind yeah. everyone that he's the funny one. So. Yeah, yeah. But what she does do is look the right age, because she was the right yeah. age. She, yeah, was she was young. 19. She, she was she, 19 she, when she made this. Yeah, she was the the one person in the lead cast there who was banging the target age mm. during one of the leaden music scenes. I think it's um, Don Solash's moment. Yes. Where he's playing his song. We'll come to it. But... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie Collins is sitting there reading and filing her nails at the same time or something, and her love interest in it is reading a big old newspaper, and this uh, slinky blonde walks past him, and he automatically gets up to, to follow her. <laughs> just sort of grouch her And Jackie Collins reaches out with one, one hand and just sits him back down on the chair without <laughs> even looking up from her book or whatever it is. Yes. That... That was a nice moment. And yes. it does have one or two little saving graces like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good old Jackie Collins at the beginning of uh, beginning of a very successful career. I was just going to say about the um, receptionist or the, the telephone operator lady at Carol's work. Yes. You know, they call in there. It's a small yes, role, yes, tiny yes. role as the comedy yeah. uh, gossipy uh, receptionist. Um, yeah. That's Dinah Chesney. Yes. Who, who had a long career. She was in uh, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, a few years later, 1960. And then yeah. she went to, appeared to go to America and was in Lowe's Italian, The Monkeys, Bewitched, Six Million Dollar Man, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century with the lovely Erin yeah. uh, Gray. Um, and her last movie was Robin Hood, Men in Tights. The Mel, Mel Brooks, Brooks movie, yeah. And yeah, you, you've, you've neglected to mention... Mm. The short from 1985, Beaver Gets a Boner. <laughs> Is she really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got it three times on DVD. But the... <laughs> the she was also slightly comical in this, wasn't she? You know, yeah. but of course, there's a little bit of but light it... comedy. But, but it again, it's not against stuff. anything. Yeah, no. it's let's have a comedy character. But it's not it's not bouncing off anything, isn't it? It's sort of shouting into no, nothing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's a bit yeah. like the 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 uh Patsy Rowland sort of yeah, role. It's very like that. That in... we that we saw in Dateline Diamonds, you know, where she's yes. kind of thrown in there to make us laugh in the middle of and it's just like, well, that's weird. Yeah. Uh but yeah, she yeah. does that and had a fantastically long career, long and successful yeah. career. Uh, yeah. Which uh, peaked with uh, the beaver gets a boner in '85. <laughs> oh dear! Um, but I do recognise one of the other faces. Yeah, uh, among the dancers, who is one Walter Randall? Walter Randall, he's absolutely. The, he's yeah, he's the guy you see um, in the middle sequence when yes. they're auditioning the bands, and there's a skinny guy in a lumberjack shirt and very dark yeah. hair. Yeah, um, and. He went on to be a bit of a sort of bit part actor and was in, yeah. and for me is interesting because once again, there's a, a yeah. link to Doctor, my favourite programme, Doctor Who. And he was in Doctor Who half a dozen times from William Hartnell through to John Pertwee. But also um, for five years, ran a restaurant with John Pertwee. 
They are yes, the restaurant that's together. True, isn't it? Yeah, in yeah. the mid seventies. In the mid seventies. He's, he's an immediately yeah. familiar face. Actually, you see in the yeah. background uh, scenes there, yeah. and takes uh, does some enthusiastic dancing. Yeah, so. and he did, he did a lot of that sort of bit part role. Yeah, yeah. there we go. So uh, we haven't mentioned Angus the dog, by the way. Oh, oh sorry, to hello, Angus the Dennis. dog. Yeah, you see. So, uh, yeah, he gets billed. He gets a billing in it. He's actually on the credit. I don't think he's even referred to, is he? You just see him cat- being no, carried says, by a couple of and, Angus. No, but it doesn't say Angus the dog on it. It just says, and Angus. Mm. Jackie Collins holds a dog, mm. and I'm assuming that's Angus. Some of the tunes are dogs, but <laughs> there's not... Um... <laughs> But not about the whole thing's young... a dog's breakfast. <laughs> Put that in a bowl of munch on that. <laughs> Shall we move to Tony Hall? Yeah, he's the compare you see at the end in the showcase bit at the end. He was the compare at the Flamingo Club. Yeah. Um, and this ties in with the person who actually instigated this movie, who was Jeffrey Kruger. But not only was he um, the compare at the Flamingo for 10 years from 1951, he was. Uh, an A&R man for Decca Records, and particularly for its Tempo Records subsidiary, which is jazz mm. subsidiary, and signed Tubby Hayes. Yeah, the great Tubby Hayes. Yeah, you know, our first great bebop sax player. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And a guy called Jimmy Ducha. I did not pronounce it Ducha or Docha. Docha, no. He was a Scottish jazz trumpet who worked with Johnny Dantworth Seven and Ronnie Scott and Tubby Hayes himself. Mm. And he mm. wrote a couple of the songs on this uh, on this movie uh, on the back we'll of see. a matchbox on the back yeah exactly i mean they're not not deep conversation but he was signed by by tony hall to to his thing yeah. and later on hall um worked as a promoter and yeah. and promoted gigs for the rolling stones hendrix Moody Boos, Sabbath. Right from the early days, he worked with Buddy Holly, Brenda Lee, Righteous Brothers, mm. Ike and Tina Turner. In fact, he was the guy who plugged mm. uh uh, River Deep Mountain High. After it oh, okay. flopped, after it flopped in the in the states, he plugged it in Britain, and it was a massive hit. That's what made that record. Yeah, and that was his work. And that was his. It work. was his work. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, he worked with Hendrix, Dusty Springfield, Scott Walker, Zombies, mm. Who. He he also presented Oh Boy. He became a co-presenter on Oh Boy, which is Jack Good's uh, follow-up to to Six Five Special. Yeah, or, or rival. Well, it, it, it's sort of. Blue six five special out of the water, really didn't it? Absolutely, it the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the full realization of what Jack Good wanted to do. Yeah, uh, we've covered that before in six five special. We did, yeah. Go and look at that pod. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to that again. Mm. Yeah, and and he was the manager of bands like uh, sort of British sort of eighties soul bands. Um, the, the real thing were one and Lyndon David Hall, Loose Ends, I think. Were yeah, another one. Yeah, not my cup of tea at all. But no. Uh, but yeah. pretty successful and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, an interesting guy. Um, he has a very minor role in this. He just He's, introduces yeah. and only does a couple of introductions. But yeah, I guess one of them, Tony Crombie does some of the introductions as well. Himself, he does, he? Yeah. yeah. So Tony Hall does the first two. Mm. And then after he introduces Tony Crombie, Tony Crombie MCs the rest of the gig, you know. So. That's right, it's weird. Again, yeah. another continuity. Odd, odd choice. Continuity well, probably choice. Tony Hall had had to go off to another engagement. and they, yeah, they He seemed like a busy bloke. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't afford to bring him back. So they just said to, to Tony Crombie, will you do anything? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Don't get paid double. I mean, I'm reading between the lines here. Yeah. I think there's something going on. Because, um, <laughs> so we mentioned Tony Hall and the, and the Flamingo Club. Yes. And the Flamingo Club was was started uh, by uh, an impresario called Jeffrey Kruger. Yes. Um, who was, uh, and he established the Flamingo Club in 1952. 
Um, and it, it started off as a, a jazz, sort of cool jazz um, club, uh, exclu- you know, initially and exclusively. But they gradually broadened the remit. And by the 60s, by the early 60s, it had become the scene for for the yeah. R&B, for the emerging R&B and mod. Famous, famously Georgie fame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was that sort of uh, more jazz-influenced R&B sound. Yeah. So it was Georgie yeah. fame, uh, uh, Graham Bond organisation yeah. with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, Zoot Money and the Big Roll Band, all yeah. that sort all, all bands like that. That sort of more sophisticated jazz-influenced mm end of the R&B spectrum. And the club itself became a big haunt for, for mods and the West Indian community that mm. was emerging as well, all gravitated towards um, the Flamingo Club by the, by the early 60s, early to mid 60s. Mm. And it became very popular, especially with sort of rhythm and blues and ska. I, I think it's fair to say that, that Jeffrey Cougar is probably the only credible person behind the scenes on this film. In terms yes. of a an actual music enthusiast, someone who was interested in the music was in it for as a, in a non exploitation role. How mm. it, he was the guy who persuaded Tony Crombie to form that's a, right, a, a rock group in the first place. He'd be that's Tony right. Crombie was a jazz drummer. We'll come. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. uh, he was the guy who said to him, "Like, why don't you?" you know, make a, a rock and roll band, you know, just com- mm. convert one of your bands yeah. into a rock and roll band. Well, and I think, I think Crombie had been impressed with the, the music in the rock around the clock film. Um, oh, absolutely. But, but Kruger persuaded him to go full pelt into the yeah. music. And that he um, could probably make some money out of it, you know? So. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a um, pragmatic move as, uh, as well. But I think also Kruger liked jazz but he also, as it turned out, also really dug the sort of rock and the soul and everything that came after as mm. well. So you mm. can see he follows it. He's a credible music figure. Uh, ended up working with people like Glenn Campbell, Gladys Knight, Marvin Gaye, Barry White, That's Johnny a... Cash. Later on, I think through mm. his association with Glenn Campbell, um, mm. who he mm. really pushed, um, I think it was Witch to Lime. I think it was his first big singles. Mm. I don't know if worldwide, but certainly over here, came out on Ember Records, which was his yeah. record his, label, his label that he yeah. started. And um, one of the first, I think, ahead of the curve of, um, and cer- certainly ahead of the curve of, ba- of labels like Immediate and things like that, he'd already got Ember Records going by the early mm. 60s because one of their releases was a record that I know you have because I gave it to you, which is Full Britannia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, Tony Newley, uh Peter Sellers and yeah. Joan Collins. Yeah, yeah. Newley's then wife, sending up and satirising the Profumo Affair. Yeah, and that's uh, interesting because one of the key um, events of the Profumo affair was when there was a dust up between two of Keeler's lovers, uh, which was Johnny Edgecombe and Lucky Gordon, mm. and that took place in the Flamingo Club. Flamingo Club, yeah, yeah, and so it all there's this big loop round, and there was also the single Christine by Joyce Blair, sister of Lionel. Or Miss X, Miss X, as she was a, uh, as she was billed, which is also satirising it. Um, that was also on Ember, uh, and yeah. it's what I was saying earlier about the um, about the deference of the way uh, Johnny in this movie talks to the TV executive, and they say the end of deference happened, you know, with um, 
the satire boom initially of of um, Beyond the Fringe, yeah. um, and that was the week that was. That was the week that was. Among yeah. many others, and the Establishment Club also in Soho, like the Flamingo Club was. Um, and it was this the apotheosis of that was the Profumo affair that brought down the uh, Tory government of the early 60s that and of course the uh, lady chastity affair and that ties in directly with some of the characters in this very movie mm. in this very movie and particularly jeffrey kruger with his with his flamingo club and that's that's the end of deference and that's one of the real kickstarters of the 60s and in this movie we're still in a stuffy world for, i mean understandably because rock and roll hasn't really happened but it's still in a stuffy world of deference one two one two three four about the music in this movie we've already touched in six five special on where rock and roll was at this point so yes. rock and roll is is still in the birthing process in the uk mm. at this point skiffle yeah. is really big it's gonna plateau pretty soon mm. and then it's gonna morph into a brief rock and roll patch yes. uh, and, a, and a, a shining moment which is not now but in a couple <laughs> of years or a, even you know, a year and a bit later, where Britain mm. finally gets rock and roll, finally yep. gets it right, finally produces an artist or several artists who understand the genre, love the music, and have obviously listened to all the references from the United States. So they've obviously yes. listened to more than just blooming Bill Haley. Yeah. Bill Haley's great. There's nothing wrong with Bill yeah. Haley. But they, but as a standalone example of rock and roll, it's a, a, a tiny speck of the picture. Mm. And the, the artists that follow from sort of 58 onwards in, in Britain finally get it right. The other thing about the artists you're mentioning there is that they were young. Mm. Most of the artists that we see here and we'll talk about them in, in more depth mm. in a moment, are people who previously worked mostly in jazz and mm. are already in, in their 30s or pushing 30. Tony Crombie 
who uh, who we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, and his band, uh, but he he was the same age as Bill Haley, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. Whereas the people that we're talking, you, you, you were just talking about, like like Cliff, like Billy Fury, Marty Wilde, even people like that, um, were in their late teens, barely yeah. twenty, you know. Yeah. They were. Yeah. They, Joe they Brown, were very, all those people. Joe Brown, yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm. and you could see it, mm. and that's what made mm. all the difference. Critically, they had a different route to to where they were too. So mm. the people who are performing in this movie came through the traditional route to becoming a musician. So mm. they were jobbing musicians, and in many cases, and we'll touch on this, very, very good ones. Yes. But they were jobbing musicians, and they would have come up through the music halls. They all would have played at some point in the line in a big band, that, yep. and, in, and then in smaller groups, all reading from music. They were all trained, uh, often self-taught, and we'll come to that as well mm. in this, but... But they were, they'd come through the traditional route and it was all about making music for dance halls. That's where they made their money, yep. in, in the dance halls. And there's some recording. But, you know, the, for, for the British recording industry then, you wouldn't be expecting to make a sole living out of selling records. That boom hadn't quite hit the British recording artists at this no, particular indeed. state. Whereas the young crowd we're talking about then, you mentioned them, Cliff and Billy Fury and Marty Wilde and all those guys, they had come out of the skiffle boom. Yes. Where they'd thought, oh, that sounds great. I'm going to pick up a guitar. I'm going to learn my three, four chords and start banging out some tunes. And they'd learned their crafts in the coffee shops and places mm. like that. You know, they, yep. they hadn't gone to this to the, to the music halls as a, as a semi-pro. They were... Strictly speaking, up and coming amateurs, and yeah. but they learnt their pro craft in a different way. Yeah. So they were a completely different animal, and this movie doesn't tap into that vibe at all, <laughs> at all. The coffee shop, the new music vibe. Now, interestingly, the movie we're we gonna, see a coffee shop in yeah, it. Yeah, we do see a coffee shop in it. Uh, uh, one that had probably been erected in the studio and had wafer-thin walls as well. But in the next movie we're going to cover, in this single pod, we come to a, a movie which you can compare quite easily against this because it's in roughly a similar time frame. And there is a direct connection. And there is a direct connection. And that definitely is taking the coffee shop music route and has a different angle on the sort of style of rock and roll artists, which is much more in the vein of what we're talking about with Cliff and all those guys, Tommy Steele. So, yeah, I must forget Tommy Steele. And all yeah. of those people who came out of the two eyes, you know, and, and all those great Soho coffee bars were producing this new rock and roll uh, sound that was coming out of Britain. But this film doesn't deal with that at all. Uh, so shall we move on to the musicians? Yeah. Starting with uh, Tony Crombie? Or should we yes, go Tony through Cr it in order of where they've appeared? In no, this? well, I think I think Tony Crombie, we'll start with him, because although he doesn't appear until about halfway through the film, yeah, we, we should talk about him first, because uh, he was, as well as being the most sort of prominent and respected musician... He had a direct link to uh, Jeffrey Kruger, uh, who, as we said, uh, encouraged him to um, to go full pelt into rock and roll. And Jeffrey Kruger was responsible for the for the musical content of yeah of of the, the movie, film. and I presume scouted the uh, the acts out. Although Tony Crombie and the Rockets were one of our very first, if not the first, rock and roll band in Britain. He was also a pioneer of bebop back in the late forties. Yeah, 40s. he was with John Dankworth and. And Ronnie Scott, 
Ronnie Scott, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they all played together in the late 40s, pioneers of, of bebop. They really established it in, in this country. And that's really important stuff. So Crombie was a go-to musician for a lot of American artists when they came over here. Because, of course, in those days, because of the musician unions laws in both Britain and America, you simply couldn't take your band, Lock, Stock and Barrel, to the States and you couldn't yeah. take the American bands. Here was tit for tat. Well, Lonnie, Lonnie Donegan couldn't even play his guitar, no, let alone take his band. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so you could bring maybe your musical director, your piano player, maybe a couple of mm. people, but it was rare. You know, you had to pick up a band in the UK and Crombie became one of the go-to musicians that the american artists came uh came to when when they played over here and he played yeah. with a real host of of the a-list american jazz people he was also a good composer uh and one of the tunes so near so far that he composed was a big big staple of no less than miles davis miles so, davis himself yeah in 63 if you're going to establish yourself in the uh, A list of jazz, then having yeah. Miles Davis champion in one of your pieces yeah. uh, is quite something. And he had a good career as a as a writer and composer. Yeah, because he wasn't a bad pianist. He played piano um, on some people's records. Yeah, and, and in fact, Miles Davis was planning just before he died was planning to do another one of his put another one of his numbers down. It's obviously somebody that he rated. Yeah, and um, but yeah, but. Uh, uh, but he'd already played with, by the time this movie comes around, Crombie'd even played with Duke Ellington. Yes, he'd when played he came with the over Duke. Here. Yep. I mean, how about that? I mean, that's yeah, top of the yeah, tree. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that is, is that absolutely is, top of the tree. That is jazz um, royalty right there. I think it's fair to say that Tony Crombie recognised when he heard rock and roll. You know, I'll take it one step back. Tony Crombie was already playing jazz with a beat mm. by this point. Yes. So a lot of Crombie's uh, music was known as being pretty wild by jazz mm. standards. So it wasn't genteel jazz. Uh, no. uh, one of the reviews said it was is exciting, bold and loud. So mm. and he was playing jazz that was influenced by hot jazz and, and also by bebop. But he was playing it louder with a lot of force. So it wasn't lounge jazz, this. No. This was jazz with a lot of drive that he was yeah. playing. And, of course, as the, as the drummer, he was, dri- he was the guy driving that forward. It was very much his vision. So I think it's only natural that when he heard this new form of music coming over from the States, he actually saw its value. And when he saw yeah. Bill Haley coming across, he can also see, well, this is a jazz band. It, or ostensibly, mm. although it was a Western swing band, it's got the same makeup. It's worth noting that Tony Crombie, he forms the Rockets, which is obviously yeah, Bill Haley and the Comets, Tony Comets, Crombie, Tony and, Crombie and, and the Rockets. Rockets. Yeah, yeah, you can and, see what he's doing there. You and the band is is, a, is absolute facsimile of of that in style and content and makeup and the jobs mm. that everybody does in that band. But it is. It is worth noting that he got a good band together. So he's not in this movie, but Jet Harris was the it, original bass player of the his... Rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. incredible, isn't it? It's good connection. Yeah. Well, another connection actually with Cliff is that before this, um, uh, Tony Crombie had played with Tito Burns. Yes, who was yeah. Cliff's original manager in his early days of his of his fame, and. and was formerly musician and and had played with uh, Tony Crombie had played with Tito Burns. 
But uh, Crombie, as you would expect from a top jazz musician, has a very, very good band in this. And you can see mm-hmm. that whatever you think of the songs, and we'll come to that, the <laughs> the quality of the playing is is it's in the pocket. And they are good. We have another connection and a very good one. So in a 6-5 special, Lonnie Donegan had a small band there of drums, bass, himself, and a guitarist. The guitarist is Jimmy Curry in okay. that. And Jimmy Curry is Tony Crombie's guitarist in this. Oh! Right? I did not know that. Very, very good guitar player, Jimmy Curry. A really fine yeah. player. Again, one of the formative British rocker. He's Scottish, born in Edinburgh. He was a jazz player. Yeah. A very, very good jazz player. His first love was jazz, but he, he did like rock and roll. So it wasn't like he was a reluctant rock and roller. He bought into it when uh, Lonnie Donegan hired him. He was happy to do it. So when we were... Watching Jack of Diamonds, it's him playing those tasty little licks. It's the same guitarist. It's a good, good guitar playing on that. Yeah, but it's good him. Guitar it's him. Player. It's Jimmy Curry that wrote the in this movie wrote the very grammatically correct. Let's yeah. you and I rock. Let's you and I rock. Yeah, yeah rock. Let us open brackets. You and yeah. I. That is close yeah. brackets. Rock. Rock. Yeah. <laughs> he did also write with Lonnie Donegan. I'll never fall mm. in love again. Uh, oh. which Lonnie Donegan recorded and later Tom Jones had a massive hit with. It's it's not the uh, Burke Baccarat. The I'll Bobby Gentry Burke Baccarat. Yeah, no, no, no it's, not, it's, not, it's not that one. <laughs> but it is a, a pretty much equally famous song. Elvis covered it as well. And uh, actually, uh, Lonnie Donegan did a very nice version of that with uh, Jimmy Curry back in 1962 oh. with, with that. And they wrote that song together. So he didn't write loads of songs, but he did write a couple of good ones. Uh, mm. But he was a very, very well-respected guitar player. Uh, he, he returned to jazz uh, after that and played, did a lot of really top, top touring jazz gigs. So he performed with Lonnie Donegan, George Melly. He went on to do some work okay. with Val Dunican, Shirley Bassey, Ackerbilt, Judy Garland. Okay. Uh, so he had a pretty strong career, which he carried on going uh, in into this century. So wow. uh, he died in 2009. Mm. Uh, and uh, But he was working, you know, right throughout... Hugely respected guitarist and a nice connection in our series. So Tony Crombie always had a good band and this band was no less. It's not Jet Harris in this, unfortunately. No, it's uh, not. Have a that would have been a good connection. That would, would have been, been a, a lovely one. But but it is enough that, that Jet Harris, were, Tony Crombie's band was one of the ones where he cut his teeth before moving on to the Vipers, actually. Okay. Uh, so... He he performed, or concurrently, really. So he performed in the Vipers. And the Vipers were Skiffle, obviously, yeah. Yeah, Skiffle yeah. performed in Tony Crombie, and then went on to the uh, Drifters, as was, became the Shadows. Who became the Shadows, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I never. Well, I never. That's a super connection. That's a super yeah. connection. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So as well as backing a couple of the other artists, Crombie and his band performed two of their own songs here. The first of which I actually thought wasn't too bad. Let's You and uh, I Rock is... Yeah, it's okay. I thought, it's, it's I, fine. Thought, I thought it was all right. And certainly in the context of this film, it's probably the best song in the... Or at yeah. least close to being the best with, song in the With in the, the title track. With the title yeah, track, Yeah, with the title track. Um, the other ba- the other song they sing is pretty uh, excruciating. The uh, oh, Blackpool Brighton Rock, Rock or whatever. Brighton, yeah, uh, yeah, Brighton Rock. Brighton yeah. Rock. It, that's pretty horrible. Uh, 
you know, uh, yeah. No, no that, I do like to be beside be, the seaside. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. No, it's, uh, no, just stop no. right there. I mean, with you. what a tenuous guy. And it just showed you how little the understanding actually was of rock and roll to be going, yeah. well, a stick of rock. Yeah, that's like rock, yeah. isn't it? And the fact that we have to mention rock in every title. You know, yeah. they, they hadn't got it. They had not grasped the the. No, it's just the a medium. novelty thing, isn't it? As far as they're concerned, it's just absolutely. And, and also, and yeah, and they're again they're looking at it like a dance craze, so they're yeah. just sticking the word rock, and it's particularly like they did with the in, twist a few years later. Yeah, yeah, just put the word twist on it, and people yeah. do the dance, and it's uh, that's exactly yeah. the angle they're looking at it in this movie. Yeah. So because you've got well we'll, well, we'll come to it, but there's the Dixieland rock that's done in a bit of a Dixieland style. Yeah. The, uh, was it rocking the blues or whatever it is that yeah in fact it's it's, it's most prevalent on the ones that don solash who yeah, we see yeah. mumbling through um uh through his blues song uh, yeah. beyond his drum kit yeah rocking the blues um he actually wrote a couple of the other yes he did songs so he wrote dixieland rock and he also wrote the rock and roll calypso that we yes. see george calypso brown play later yeah. on they're they're both his comment and they're literally Take a genre and put the word rock on the end, and it's yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and that's his I think MO. It's worth noting that obviously uh, a, a concurrent artist was was Tommy Steele at this time, and although Tommy yep. Steele's rock and roll doesn't set the world on fire by any stretch of anyone's imagination, it's it's I find it fairly poor. He at least had songwriters of the caliber of Lionel Bart writing yep. some of his better material. Yeah. Um, and and that does make a bit of a difference in this, who wasn't fixated on... I mean, even a lot of his, he had to say, we're rocking with the caveman. You know, it's... Yeah. Uh, the, the British They're haven't got it. They haven't got it at this stage. Well, they don't get it. Well, the thing, the thing I always say is that, although America had vaudeville, uh, America had the breeding grounds of rock and roll in the Chitlin circuit and in the Honky Tonks, uh, mm. you know, scenes like that. Where, where sort of blues and R&B and country could develop and cross-pollinate. Um, mm. We didn't have that in this country. No. It, was, it, no. was, it was a foreign cutting into the garden. Yeah. And, and what we did have, um, and I always try and bear this in mind, we had the variety halls mm. yeah, and the working men's club. We, yeah, we that was our scene. And when rock and roll came over here, it had to adapt to the pre-existing... Yeah. Uh, performance yeah. areas and yeah. and touring circuits, which were variety halls mostly, and they and so it had to sort of go through this weird awkward phase, um, and it's still there in some of the stuff you see the Beatles and bands like that doing yeah. uh, in the early sixties. And, and, and part of part of part of that still comes true in the fact that a lot of British music still had to maintain humour. As one of mm. its big draws, as one yep. of its at the core and heart of even a lot of successful later bands, there's kind yeah. of a humour because music hall was mainly about humour, and even mm. working men's clubs. When you go, if you don't have a sense of humour, don't go and play in working men's clubs. You know, no, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So you're you're bang on the money with that. It just wasn't set up, and I think you're sort of the rare hybrid, the cutting. Analogies is excellent. So that's Tony Crombie. So um, the 
first band we see in the movie then is Rory Blackwell and the Blackjacks. Oh, yes. Wow. It's the first yeah. band we truly see. The band we hear over the opening credits and then witness uh, playing in the in the dance hall. Um, who also, along with um, Tony Crombie's band, also lay claim to being the first ever rock and roll band in yeah, Britain. Yeah, they, sort yeah, of, yeah. They, they were both at the same time. I don't think anyone could say they were truly the yeah. first. He's a... Quietly important guys, Rory yes, Blackwell, he because, is, yeah. because this this very year, and it ties into the next movie we're going to it be talking does. about. It does, yeah. He discovered a young singer by the name of Terry Dean. Yes, who we feature in the next movie. Yeah, in discovering him is one of the many sort of proto Elvises before we quite found our Cliff and quite found our Billy Fury. Yeah, we'll keep up out of dry on Terry Dean. We'll have a lot to say about him in the next section. But he was discovered and did play with Robbie Blackwell and the Blackjacks. Mm. And a couple of years later, in 1959, they were playing a a holiday camp in Wales where he discovered a 16-year-old piano player by the name of Clive Powell, who a few years later was rebranded Georgie Fame. Yep, indeed. He only played with him for that season. But nevertheless, a discovery is a discovery. Yes, um, and they did carry on the association loosely. but uh, And as we yeah. see, Georgie Fame is connected to Tony Crombie, is connected via Ronnie Scott and all of these other connections. And, yeah, Tubby Hayes worked with him, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Jeffrey yeah. Kruger with the, uh, with the Flamingo. Yeah, so, so lots of connections. Later on, he had in his band um, a bassist called Nick Simper. He did. Uh, who joined Johnny Kidd and later on was the original bass player in Deep Purple. And later on, apparently, Rory Blackwell achieved many world records uh, for achievements on music, yes. like playing the most amount of instruments in 30 seconds or uh, playing the fastest yeah, yeah. tune. So he would have been, he would have at least had a nodding acquaintance to, uh, to the great Roy Castle. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think his song is horrible. Rocking yeah, with Rory. Rocking with Rory. Oh, and it's sort of off key or something. I'm oh, not quite sure what's awful. wrong with it. It's. It's it's a boom boom. That is really bad. It comes after quite a blazing opening number with tremendous bit of sax playing and the band and everything. Yeah, and they're really, they're really. I wouldn't say rocking. They're swinging in that. It's, first it is number. swing. It's jazz. It's it's because it's written by Jimmy Ju- Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy Ducha. Yeah, it's R- it's jazz with it. a backbeat. It's jazz with a backbeat. Uh, but it's good. And then they go from that to this insipid nonsense rocking mm. with Rory. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, he did appear in uh, Oh Boy and in and as many people on this, pretty much all the acts in this also appeared not in the movie of Six Five Special, but on the Six Five Special TV broadcast. The actual TV so series. I'd say I'm trying to think of anyone here who didn't. But I, I know think pretty mu- I think I... nearly all of them did. Who didn't? Curly Pat Barry. Oh, Curly Who's that little kid? I mean, where did that come from? Out of the blue. Out where... of the blue. This little kid, I thought, was actually a, a younger version of Wee Jackie Dennis, who we saw in oh, his, t- in his Tartan Toulouse in the oh. Six Fire Special movie. Um, and I thought it was one that it's not, actually. It's a different awkward kid on stage. And in fact, um, Curly Pat Barry um, has so little charisma, he makes Jackie Dennis seem like Tom Jones. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> In tartan trousers, rather than leather ones. But the wee Jackie Dennis sequence on Six Five Special was one of those moments that I had to bleach my eyeballs and brain 
to try and get rid of for quite some time. I remember you being very vociferous about it. I think I've sort of got there now. But Curly Pat Barry, his his sequence was less offensive, Mm. but technically worse. Yeah, but he's got no charisma and he's got a weak voice. I mean, I don't know what... I presume... I I guess he must have been a relation of somebody... He must have known someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... Because even he hasn't done Six Fire Special. Even he no, didn't they, appear in the TV series. He's the only one. He's the, the only Arkham, one yeah. that didn't. I think he was just someone's little brother. I guess he must have been. I've got no information about no, him, so I can't tell you anymore. literally all I could find out about it. Folks, if you're listening, if you're still listening, if you know anything about Curly Pat Barry, why not drop us a line? I mean... Somebody's bound to be interested, and just just for completeness' sake, tell us who he is and why he's yeah. in it. Um, if you know, and that'd be great. Yeah. Let's move to Art Baxter. Yeah. Let's cover off Art because, he, after all, he has the title of tune. Yeah, Rock You Sinners, which he co-wrote. Or you'll end up down below. <laughs> Gee, it's hot down here. It's again. It's it's a it's a Bill Haley style uh, set up. Bill Haley style Very. performance, and like Bill Haley, he's clearly middle aged. <laughs> as you know, I mean, to, uh, Art Baxter does not look in. He doesn't look like an old man, but he's not in his first flush of youth. No, he was born in 1926, but he's of the Bill Haley generation, so he's 31. This is 56, so he'd be 31 uh, probably. Yeah. And okay, so he's he's younger than I thought. To so modern eye, he looks good ten years older than that. Yeah. What I would say about his songs on this is they're not the worst. No, on they're the suffering. Okay. They're among the well, the Dixieland rock. That, yeah, that's a bit naff. Again, it's tenure. It's it's always horrible when people make stuff like that. You know, try and do yeah. a a mashup of that sort of style. It's no honesty about it. And let's face it, one of the things that makes rock and roll work when it works is the bolt ahead honest raw honesty of the music mm. it it was never as successful when they smoothed out the edges yeah. which they desperately proceeded to when rock and roll stuck the job of the establishment was to take the edges off and make it yeah. you know sanitize and it you very much see that in a lot success- of elvis's movies and, and clips yeah which they successfully did after that but Rock and roll is best with brutal, raw honesty. Mm. And as soon as you start going way down, down upon the swanee to yeah. a rock and roll beat, you've lost that blunt honesty. Mm. Um, uh, but Rock You Sinners is one of the better songs on there. It's not saying much. No. There's also Arts Theme, which is another Jimmy Deutscher, um or Deutscher yeah. uh, number, which again is another sort of instrumental just... Um, yeah. pounding through. The instrumentals work better than the vocal numbers mm. because they don't have the, the same naff lyrics and the musicianship throughout. Art, Art Baxter's band and Tony Crombie's band in particular, it, the musicianship is very good. Yeah, yeah. They're all jazz as well. Uh, Art Baxter had come up um, through the jazz the jazz band and jazz orchestra thing. Yep. He'd, he'd yep. been the featured vocalist for a whole... But none that I'd really heard of. But from 53 to 55 was the feature vocalist with the Ronnie Scott Orchestra. Yeah. That was his big his big break, had been working with Ronnie Scott. And then the following mm. year, he similarly had the rock and roll epiphany or, or decided it was the time to, to jump horses. And there he formed the Rock and Roll Sinners. He was of Phillips Records who called him the, the king of rock and roll in Britain. For about five minutes, probably. Wow. But he, um, and did a headlining tour of the UK. Did a headlining tour of the UK. He's a decent singer. Yeah. He's got a good, strong, powerful voice. Got a bit of charisma. With some 
texture to it. Yeah. He's okay. He's okay. I think he's probably one of the one of the better a- actual frontmen performers in the whole whole movie. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Clyde Ray for Tony Crombie does a fair job as well actually. Mm. He he's 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 passable as uh, both vocally and in terms of his performance value yes. Tony Crombie singer Clyde Ray who I know nothing about I'm sorry about yeah. that again if you know a lot about Clyde Ray tell us here I don't know anything about him mm. but I do know he was singing there he does a decent job there as well apparently he had quite a colourful life after this band broke up Baxter apparently fell into a life of crime for a while I don't know oh, wow. how that manifested itself or what he did or what he got up to but apparently he he worked on the other side of the law for a while because he'd been quite a prominent singer for a while that Quite why his bridges burnt to such a degree he'd be uh, he'd be wanting to do that. Yeah, but yeah, later yeah, yeah. on he was the um, manager and resident singer at the um, Frog and Nightgown on the old Kent Road. Very salubrious, yeah. Indeed, yeah. and that was in the eighties. Apparently became a South London legend, but legend well, legendary for what or or by whom I don't know. But that was him. There is a book called From Here to Obscurity in Two Hundred and Forty Days. Yeah, that's right. Which is the Art Baxter, Baxter story. story. Yeah, but uh, it's long out of print. Devilishly hard to get hold of these days. Yeah. I think it was self-published or something. It's uh, I think it was his nephews yeah, put yeah. it together. That looked like an, uh, it might be an interesting read, particularly if you're a fan of this era. Yes. So that's Art Baxter. So there's also Dicky Bennett. Yes. Who we see in a very odd scene. We see. Johnny going to talk with him and he sat next to a piano player whose name I can't catch who looks really weird he looks like he's just been come out of hospital or something doesn't he he's uh first of all he looks like he belongs in the 1930s yes the piano player he sees with I mean if we're talking about uh white English people out of place in a rock and roll movie (laughs) this guy personifies that prematurely balding um a very straight-laced, again, in the uh, entirely the wrong suit. Uh, he makes the objection when he says, who else is on the bill? Because they're approaching Dickie, they're Bennett. approaching Dickie Bennett to perform on this bill. Yeah, and uh, and Dickie says, who else is on the bill? And they, they says, oh, Tony Crombie, Art Baxter. Joan Small. I can't remember who else he mentioned, yeah. but I think he mentions Don Solash. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, this, and this incredibly square piano player besides him go, oh, well, he's more balanced, you know, about Dickie Bennett. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he goes, yeah. he's more balanced, you know. And and what the beautiful thing that our hero, Johnny, says at that time is, oh, yes, but we need him for balance, <laughs> which he's already said earlier in the piece. And again, if you're going to sweet talk someone, what do you want me for? I just want you for balance, mate. <laughs> you know, it's not because it's not I believe in your talent, no. but I just thought you might balance... Anyway, Dick, Dickie Bennett says, oh, good bunch, yes. when referring to them, and he'll, he'll do it, looks forward to it. He then comes on to perform the most excruciating rendition of Heartbreak Hotel you're ever going to... And the, the thing is, I, I'm not quite sure, and it says a lot about the tone of this movie, they actually laugh, the people around laugh at him, or laugh, I'm not sure with him or at him, as he's doing it, and it's like... He's doing yeah. a parody of Elvis. It's the closest thing exactly, in the movie exactly to somebody attempting to do your hip swinging uh, rock and roll Elvisy kind of moves. Yeah, and the people in the audience are laughing, and it's like, is he meant to be doing a parody of an Elvis uh, yeah. thing, or or what? Oh, I couldn't one hundred percent place it. It seemed to me like they were going. Oh, yes, there was a big furore about that in America, but that's not going to happen here, here yeah, 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 in yeah. Blighty. Uh, <laughs> you know, which, it, which, of course, 
when you look at the fervour of the British fans was every bit as much as, yes. you know, look at Beatlemania, look at how they were for all of these rock and roll songs. Yeah. This film, again, doesn't have its finger on the pulse no. of how British kids respond to rock and roll. They don't actually want someone doing a parody of Elvis mm. or, or in any way belittling yeah. those things. They want a bona fide Elvis or Elvis even better performing for them there yeah. and giving them the rush that Elvis was giving fans over in the yeah. United States. And Elvis That's was what at they want. the prime of his career at this at this point in fifty seven. You know, he was he was the original yeah. Hip-shaking, slim, sexy, fiery, unpredictable Elvis that made his reputation. What this uh, seems to tell me is the industry didn't really want to find someone like that. In no. fact, they were kicking against it. They well, were trying to say, OK, but not in Britain. Yeah, they're clearly embarrassed. I mean, it's embarrassed laughter, yeah. isn't it, in the Heartbreak yeah. Hotel sequence here. And let's face it, you know, Dickie Bennett was a bog-standard two-bit balladeer. Yeah. He was a crooner. He was okay, but he's not an exceptional crooner. We had, for instance, uh, Dickie Valentine, who was in Six Five Special, yeah. can out can out croon this guy oh, with, without breaking with a sweat. Song. Without breaking a sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, Dennis Lotus, the other famous, you know, was with the Ted Heath Orchestra, could out croon this guy yeah. without breaking a sweat either. So it's a terrible version of of Heartbreak Hotel with that excruciating moment that you've described. And then he goes on to sing a instantly forgettable. Ballad. Oh, how many times? Da, 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 da. Yeah, uh, it's... yeah, with three of the most nervous-looking backing vocalists I've seen. Yeah. They look very nervous to me. Those yeah, three yeah, guys yeah, yeah, yeah. who are doing the platters style doo-wop harmonies. But looking like they've they've dropped into this place and they're looking around, going, "Oh my God, are we going to get out of here alive?" Kind of thing. <laughs> what, we very, ourselves in for? what is this? What is this underworld of of cod rock and roll that we've just landed into <laughs> with some the most peculiar cast? So it? uh, it's it's a, quite a quite a painful moment. No, well, he also sings that cry upon my shoulder in that sort of fantasy sequence when. Carol and Johnny are missing each other. That's him singing it. I've got to say, that's one of the most unsettling moments in the movie. <laughs> totally unnecessary yeah. and ridiculous and and out of place in terms of feel and setting to pretty much the rest of the movie and an absolute snoring bore. <laughs> yeah, don't hold back. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Concur wholeheartedly, though. <laughs> Concur wholeheartedly. <laughs> and talking of which, there's also Joan Small, who appears oh, here. Oh, God. Um, can't say I love you to a rock and roll tune. No, please. Against another one of those examples of, a, of just take an ordinary song and put the word rock and roll in it. If ever there was a novelty record, there was no rock and or roll involved in the song whatsoever. And also she was dressed as, uh, as I can best describe her as a mermaid on land. Yeah, she looks she exactly like a mermaid. I've got, I've got in my notes. That's what I've got in my notes is mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Hannah, she ain't. I don't know about mermaid, but the whole thing gave me the impression of a landed mackerel. <laughs> so, it's a bit of a mer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then there's Don Solash, of course. Oh, yeah, Don Solash. And his rocking, rocking horses. horses. Weird thing. Yeah, it's a pretty appalling song that he sings. Well, oh, certainly the way he sings it, rocking the blues. And really, but why not just get another vocalist? 
This guy obviously can't sing. He's singing in a register that I think is a bit too low for his voice because yeah. it's right down in his boots, the whole song. But he wrote the bloody song. He wrote it. He wrote this and quite an, and a few of the other monstrosities on this soundtrack. Yeah, a couple of the other ones, yeah. He was a drummer again. It was interesting how many of the leaders of these bands were drummers. Yeah. Uh, and he was the mover shaker, the songwriter, the leader of the band and the singer. Wrote the theme tune, sang, sang the, the theme, theme tune. tune. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he seemed to have actually had a, a day job at this point because he managed a branch of Dobell's Record Store. I think he managed the Brighton branch of Dobell's Record Store, which is the main branch was in London, and it was the place to go. Big musicians hang out. It was one of those sort of record shops. Mm. And it, particularly jazz, but also blues, folk, world music, all that sort of stuff. There's not a lot of information about him uh, that I could find. But he appeared to have managed a branch of Dobell's Records apparently in cahoots with Bill Collier. Oh, wow. Brother of Ken Collier. Ken Collier's brother, Who yeah. coined the term skiffle. And chief washboard player as That's well. Right. That's right. He did play the washboard foot. And so um, mm. he, was, he was in cahoots with, uh, with Bill Collier. And that's all I know about him was that he uh, was involved with this record shop. It would have been interesting to hear, and I've not heard anything else from Don Solash, but it would have been interesting to hear him in his proper medium, which this almost certainly wasn't. Yeah. I suspect, because he was a talented musician and could write and could bash out, that he was asked to bash out a few songs. Mm. Maybe with through the record shop he had some connections with publishers or, yeah. or something. I, yeah. I'm guessing it's probably something along those lines. I'm yeah, yeah. Song. So it's a bash out a few rudimentary songs for this. Mm. Be, it'd be interesting to know what his best output was. Yeah. It, I hope this wasn't it. <laughs> so that just leaves George Calypso Brown. Yeah. Or the Young Tiger, as he's also known as yeah. his uh, Calypso moniker, because like Lord Kitchener. Yes. Yeah, so Rock and Roll Calypso, which turns out was actually written by uh, Don Solash who we were just mentioning. Of course. Yeah, and... Um, Probably the best song he wrote in this. Yeah. It's not saying much. It's, it's, it's all right, isn't it? It does, it does its job. It's authentic. It sounds authentic. It is Calypso. It's not a rock and roll song at all. It is very no. much a Calypso number. But he was born... Yeah. Um, Edric Brown uh, was George Calypso Brown. Yeah. It's actually called Edric Brown, born in Trinidad, who, who had came via circuitous route, had... Um, joined a Norwegian oil tanker when he was about 20 <laughs> uh, as a mess boy, ended up, went via Australia. Went, so he went from Trinidad to Australia and then fetched up in Glasgow. Scotland. What a, yeah. what a life. Where he fell in, there was a, turns out there was like a Trinidadian community or uh, expat, Dar- yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. In, in Glasgow. And from there, where he sort of began making connections, established himself, end up in London. And... Had a fascinating career from there. He did Christmas Calypso in 1943. It was his first sort of notable number. Yeah, it was a breakthrough for him. Then he formed a band called Three Just Men with a bloke called Ken Gordon, who it turned out was Moira Stewart's uncle. Moira Stewart, the newsreader. Her uncle. He played with Moira Stewart's uncle, which uh, means nothing to anyone, but I quite like it. Um, And met Charlie Parker. Um, was in the chorus of some West End stage shows, became Young Tiger, adopted the name Young Tiger. Had a hit with uh, Calypso B, which was a bebop, uh, song decrying bebop as a form, but in, in Calypso okay. form, yeah. He had, had a big hit with that and a big hit with I Was There at the Coronation. I Was There at the Coronation, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, there's that 
sort of little seam in Calypso. It's like London is the place for me and things like that. These sort of positive... Yeah, yeah, London is the place for me. Yeah. And it's in that very, very much in that kind of uh, mode, yeah. isn't it? And then, But he also worked with Humphrey Littleton. Humphrey Littleton had an experiment yeah. in sort of Calypso and world, world music. He worked with uh, Paul Robeson as well. He did. He played guitar for Paul Robeson. And uh, there was a, a Nigerian nationalist and statesman called... Now, forgive me, folks. I'm going to try and pronounce this. Um, Obafemi Ewolowo. Obafemi Ewolowo. I'll, I'll buy that for a pound, yeah. Asked George Brown if he would write the Nigerian national anthem. Didn't happen. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's, that's not bad. And apparently, he actually, uh, in a, a passion play that was put on in Senegal in 1966, he played Jesus. Yeah, he played, yeah, he played Christ. Himself. Christ! Yeah! What a role. Christ almighty! <laughs> he retired from music in the 70s. and, and Yeah, uh, he did, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and he ended up, for his sins, in the place of my schooling in Croydon. Ah, <laughs> all roads lead to Croydon. But he did appear at the Electric Proms as part of the... I think it was the London is the place for me all-stars in 2006. Oh, right. He appeared at the, the BBC Electric Proms as, oh, as part of an all-star cast of Calypsonians. And only fair, because I've got to say, he's got a lovely voice. Mm. He's got a great voice. In that Calypso style, he, it's got everything you want for a gentle Calypso thing. He's got a lovely, rich, deep baritone, so I'd say sort of bass baritone. Mm-hmm. Got a great voice, great voice. It's, it's one of the best moments in the film, actually, his song. It, it just works, as much as it just works. Do you know why, though? Because it's authentic. Mm. He actually is a Calypso singer. He's singing a Calypso song. <laughs> of course, it's got the rock and roll references yeah. to it, but it rings true because he does it in a simple style with his guitar. I know there's more backing to it than that, but it's authentic Calypso backing, and he delivers it properly. So if you're a rock and roll fan, you might come in this and wonder why you're seeing two versions of a Calypso song. <laughs> but ultimately, they are the most authentic bits musically in the film. Yeah, yeah, I'll go along with that. So that's George Brown. And I think that's... Is that all the musicians? I think that's all the I, musicians. I think that's all the musicians, yes. Let's look at some of the locations. So the record shop that Jackie Collins' character is working in did a bit of detective work. And that's an actual chain of music shops, actually, more than record shops. They're still yeah. in existence. Chimes Music. Oh, is it? Chimes is yeah. still going. Right, OK. There's, there's about... Um, th- well, I mean, we're in lockdown Britain at the moment, folks. And uh, incidentally, how's life on the other side? Are we out yet? <laughs> Where are we? Uh, tell us what it's like in the future, please. Um, if you're in the future, please drop us a line back here and let us know how we do. Um, <laughs> one's in uh, the Barbican, I think. Um, and yeah, there's, about, ah. there's, three, there's three branches of it still going. And, uh, but no longer at that uh, premises that we see in the in the film here. Where was that premises? That was sixty five Marylebone High Street West One, nice. and the building is the building is still there, and the street is largely unchanged according to Google Maps uh, and Google Street View. This uh, the, the, it's largely unchanged from uh, how we see it in the uh, in the film here. So there <laughs> we go. Also, I, I would throw this out to you, the listener, um, if you could, because uh, this is not on. There's a there's a very good website called Real Streets. Yeah, we've yeah uh, we've, that that we've referred to. We've used uh, that uh, uh, particularly on uh, particularly on some people. It was it was vitally useful. That's right. For that, yeah, very useful for that. Um, so, if you listeners, 
any Londonians, anyone who's familiar with with, with London and, and the locations that are used in here, if you could let us know, just because I just for completeness' sake, just so, just so that we can know, would you be able to tell us where the building is that is used as the um, broadcasting house building? Uh, if you could tell us where that is, it's almost certainly in the West End somewhere. I'm sure it's still there. If you could let us know where that is, if you could also let us know, I'd love to know where the location where the coffee bar is. It's a genuine street, and I was trying to look out for any any uh, noticeable signs because we do notice another one. There's the um, uh, Cambridge of, Circus offices yeah. of of of, uh, Jer- of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Kruger. Kruger. Yeah, we see yeah. we we see we see those, and also EJ Fancy being the sort of cheapskate um, uh, player that he was, often used his own offices redressed yeah, 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 yeah. for 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 locations. So I believe the. Um, uh, Location for Carol's offices, yes, that uh, that they go into the solicitors, wherever she works, uh, is actually the interior of EJ Fancy's uh, office. Oh, what a that's moment! It. That's the actual EJ Fancy office. What a moment of joy that is as well when they when they kiss in the office, and it's an absolute <gasps> moment of disgrace. <gasps> yeah, and, then goes, and then they have this weird sort of false android sort of. <laughs> yeah, 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 Things absolutely. Together, don't they? And it's like, oh dear. And he's coming in supposedly all joyous. It just feels really forced. Yeah, no. Oh anyway. dear. Just before I forget, um, although this is the first film solely about rock and roll that came out in this country, this actually came out a month after a film called Kill Me Tomorrow by Terence Fisher, which, although it's a, um, a straightforward sort of drama movie, um, does feature a cameo from Tommy Steele. Singing in a in a coffee bar, they go into a coffee bar and there he is singing a rock and roll number, and that, as far as I know, is the very first British movie to feature rock and roll at all, and it was done by Terence Fisher, I think, immediately before he went to Hammer, and did um, the Curse of Frankenstein, and the Horror of Dracula, and turned British horror on its head with those two movies. He also did the very first movie to feature rock and roll at all, which was Kill Me Tomorrow. Mm. It, which came out in the, this came out in June and Kill Me Tomorrow came out in May the month before great as did the Tommy Steele story came out in June yeah 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 Tommy Steele's story was very hard on the heels yeah and we'll get around to the Tommy Steele story uh, at some point in the not too distant yeah so that's that I think that's it I think we've talked for far too long on this film <laughs> I think that's a wrap on yeah. the first rock and roll movie and uh, a new low it is a shambolic uh, movie, uh, definitely the worst one so far, so far <laughs> in our series. Okay, so that's Rock You Sinners, and we need to now turn our attention to the second part of this double bill. Indeed, which, which is, is the golden, golden disc. Johnny, his true love has found. With Carol, he's a penis bound. The show has been a great success And so we wish them all true happiness Singing aye, aye, aye You gotta rock, rock, rock and roll Aye, aye, aye It's the rock and roll calypso So now our champion disc jockey has won a double victory True love will always find a way And rock and roll 
Well, it's it's nice watching him dancing for for two reasons. First of all, because he's a good dancer, lost in the moment and enjoying himself. And secondly, mm. uh, he's dancing with Jackie Collins, who's got an absolutely smashing figure. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, yes. uh, 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 you know, we're we're, we're reviewing we're reviewing a 1957 film, so I'm allowed to use social mores of 1957. <laughs> exactly, uh, very yeah. much pre hashtag Me Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, oh. <laughs> We, uh, she's yeah, but he, a yeah, handsomely it's, it's like, built I, woman. She certainly is. She certainly is. Oh my word! Well, we'll talk about her in just a sec. Uh, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, um, I'll just. What was it? I had a little point about Colin Croft. I've thrown you uh, off with that, haven't I? I, I, yeah, I don't. Well, I'm just thinking about <laughs> Jackie Collins now, <laughs> and that's no bad. He's thing. lost his um, thread, folks. Um, what was I going to say? Um, it was Colin Croft. Shit! 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 <laughs> well, that's a review of his performance. Oh, yes, that's it, that's it, that's it. You see, that's it. I've got reams of notes, and I forget to put the actual bit I want to. Listen, uh, so, yeah, we could have cut, th- th- cut through this whole bit by you just doing that one moment. Colin Croft, <laughs> shit, 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 shit. Shit, shit, yeah. <laughs> we might have to. Uh, we, um, um, that, the... Go on. 